John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 856.RO1202, certificate number 26638, Oblique Strategies. You are a pop music fan. I, I think I've mentioned it enough that people probably have a sense that you are more uh, culturally diverse than just a guy who knows a lot of trivia. Big music nerd. Music nerd, film nerd, book nerd, poetry nerd? Pretty big poetry nerd, Yeah, I would say. Yeah, I, uh, I have been impressed uh, with your knowledge of poetry over the years. Yeah, that often comes up. You'll be like, Ken, what uh, what Emily Dickinson poem does this remind you of? Yeah, or I'll, and I'll, I'll start. Say, uh, the bird came hopping down the walk. He did not know I saw. And you're like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 right. Heavy, man. <laughs> I uh, I definitely will throw out some William Carlos Williams, and you're just right there with me. I'll just say the next line. You'll just say the next it's a, line. It's a funny thing we do at we parties. Just, <laughs> we just high-five each other. No one knows what we're talking about. But you, um, you're a David Bowie fan. Yeah. I know this about you. Love Bowie. How do you feel about uh, Bowie's Berlin period? His thin white Duke era. Uh, I understand he might be with us today if he had used maybe, a, you know, half of them as much cocaine as he did. Although you never know. During his thin white Although Duke period. you never know. Maybe the cocaine is what kept him going. There's no, it, there's not a proved link, Ken, between copious cocaine use and, uh, and cancer. Uh, I would say there's not as uh, it's hard to pick a favorite David Bowie record or song, but there's probably not a song I like better than uh, Sound and Vision off, right. off of Low. Heroes is an amazing album. Uh, that's just great work, and it sounds like it's coming from another planet. And so, how uh, how much do you know about Brian Eno, who produced those records? How much do you credit that era, that triptych of Bowie albums? Uh, to Brian Eno being a little younger than you yeah. like my my first exposure to Brian Eno was as U2's producer that's right and so I think of him as a U2 producer first and foremost oh and he's the also, also the guy from Roxy Music and the David Bowie producer and uh but I, th- I think he's you know probably one of the greatest and most innovative music producers of the rock era 
Right. He uh, he produced. For those of you not not familiar with the the production credit of albums, he and Daniel Lenoir uh, co-produced "Unforgettable Fire," which was U2's super big uh, 1980s record, where they where they transitioned from being a kind of quirky Irish. Um, uh, new wave band, slightly Christian Catholic new wave band, I right. guess <laughs> to being, uh, you know, to being like a major, major international band of superstars, Anthem factory. Right. And where, and then Joshua tree and, and Octung baby as well. But, uh, where Daniel Lenoir is an extremely accomplished musician, you know, he can play the, uh, the pedal steel, like nobody's business. Um, you know, never credited himself as um as much of a musician at all he much more sort of thought of himself as a conceptual artist when he joined Roxy Music in the early days it was it was by happenstance you know he met the sax player in a subway station is that right and uh, hey we need a synth player i was like hey want to play the synthesizer and he in the early days refused to uh, appear on stage he he sat behind the mixing console and added uh, synth effects, and then also actually sang backing vocals from, um, from you know from the, backstage from the from the mixing board. Yeah, <laughs> that kind of seems like the that goes with the the cerebral image we have of Brian Eno, right? Yeah, that's right. And and when he did start appearing on stage uh, in Roxy Music, and Roxy Music had a certain kind of on stage look and feel, uh, but Eno came out in basically. A Peter Gabriel in Genesis style costumes, big elaborate uh, outfits that you know that set him apart, kind of like the guitar player of Limp Bizkit, <laughs> <laughs> who uh, who you know often wore black contact lenses. I wonder, you have to wonder what the rest of the band thought about that. You really do, considering <laughs> well, yeah. the rest of that Limp must have Bizkit. been a conversation. Oh, I was thinking of Roxy. Oh, music. and Roxy Music but too. Yes, Limp Bizkit as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Brian Ferry was trying to present himself as a pretty suave operator, exactly. And then he's got a his wingman uh, is uh... a real peacock. <laughs> but Eno came at music from uh, from outside, and and added um, added kind of. I think I think his approach to it was. I'm not here to uh, be a virtuoso. I'm here to use music and sound in particular as a, as another palette in the creation of art. He's an idea guy. He's an idea guy. And in that, he was influenced by the painter Peter Schmidt, who was an English painter who kind of was a, a polymathic artist and someone who, um, who although was a painter expanded his purview to include kind of every different way you could make art and was part of that 60s uh, movement where the experience of art was rated as highly as the as the product or or in fact art was no longer considered a product but yeah, it's more, not an artifact anymore right, right it's more a path or a or a, a, an emotional experience, or a, or a journey, and uh, is this his work? I'm looking at it's kind of watercolors, yeah. Often very uh, kind of minimal landscapes, yeah. His uh, his muted uh, palettes, they they almost it's, feel like they're made out of ripped paper, or uh, they're multimedia works. But they're representative. That's interesting. They're and, uh, 
Yeah, they're they're actually pretty, which I was not expecting. They're beautiful, and and uh, he also was a teacher, an art teacher, and and influenced. I think had an had an outsized influence on a generation that came after him. He wasn't. It wasn't all um, uh, conceptual, right? As you're saying, a lot of it. Right. Was I, I thought. I thought it was going to be like a, a guy standing with a bullhorn under a you know a, a bucket dropping Vienna sausages on him or something. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right, or you know, or or a sort of a John Cage figure who sure white who, canvases or yeah, and just begins a process where the artist no longer has his hands on the work, but just sets it free and lets the art, uh, you know, take its own path. No, these are very controlled and uh, show a high level of craft. They look like album covers, honestly. Well, kind of what what uh, what bonds, I guess, um, Schmidt and John Cage and a lot of. Uh, a lot of artists of this period is a is a recognition that the artistic impulse it does not uh, it doesn't need to be bound to logical progression. It doesn't need to uh, one thing doesn't need to follow from another, right? You can you in in both producing and consuming art, you can have non. Um, hierarchical experiences or you can have lateral kinds of approaches to art. You can, you can effectively make it by not focusing on technique by not pursuing an end goal. Right. And you see this in a lot of modern art, a lot of um, extemporaneous art where, and, and, and ultimately it, it factored into or figured deeply into punk the idea that being good at it and pursuing a intentional course actually kind of throttled your creative, not just your creative impulse or gift, but like creativity itself. I'm, I'm a little skeptical. We've talked about this before. I'm a little skeptical about that whole idea because I do admire craft. I do admire technique. And when I'm working on something, I actually enjoy constraints um, the idea that, uh, you know, the idea that it's a purely intuitive thing that maybe anybody can do can lead to sloppy work, right? Right. And in particular with modern art, um, yeah, many people are skeptical. That's the whole, I, I don't like the whole, my kid could do this thing. Right. It's, but it's rarely true to the, to the uninformed, I guess to the untrained eye, it could be difficult to, distinguish between art made by a, a you know a university educated artist and art made by an elephant with a paintbrush um, and this is the this is the criticism of it although of course when you're confronted by a by a truly great work of art I think even a layperson will find that their their reaction is um, you know you you absolutely can tell, a beautiful work and it isn't just a it isn't just happenstance um yeah the more I, the more i look at art the real i realize that every single thing i like everybody you know a large group of people like as well like people can just tell what's good and what what they like to look at yeah you can it, put it's, a, it's hard to find you know a great piece of art that is uh you know that you could buy to put on your wall even because if you like it Enough other people do that this guy can start charging tens of thousands of dollars a canvas. Well, it's uh, you can see it in uh, in those exhibitions where you'll have a, a 
charcoal drawing by Rembrandt and then uh, charcoal drawings by his students who are also great you know artists and who are in the process of being trained i mean every once in a while you do see a work that experts can't quite attribute definitively to an artist or to his school yeah but for the most part a rembrandt charcoal and one right next to it by one of his very talented students you just know instantly from the quality of the line um that this was done by a master and sometimes in the same artist, you'll go to an artist exhibition and you'll you'll immediately say, oh, those three are the best ones. And if you look closer, those are the three that will have sold. Right. Because, you know, whatever the lightning was that struck those pieces, we can all agree they have it more than the other six. But there is, I think, a lot of truth to the fact that an artist doesn't always or necessarily understand their inspiration. Understand, I mean, it, 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 you do not ever sit down and say, Today I create my masterwork because if you could, that's all any artist would do. Sit down and, and follow a logical progression to making a great work. It's just terrifying, hoping that it comes, hoping that it doesn't go away. And knowing where it comes from, uh, which often, you know, artists just credit it with coming down from the sky. And and uh, when God played a larger role in in contemporary society, people credited it, you know, religion was the major influence. And now, you know, we have a whole secular arts community that would, that struggles to find a euphemism for God. <laughs> I've heard some artists talk about how, you know, there's no way to pull down the ideas and they, they, they frame it as, you know, putting themselves in a position to receive them, you know, keeping track of like what factors make you prone to inspiration and then trying to duplicate that you know do you need to be with people do you need to be away from other people does it do you need to be up early in the morning do you need to be up late at night you know just create the create the incubator for it but you never know when fertilization is going to happen right and unfortunately even that is not um because you because you can set up the exact conditions where you made your your last great work and find yourself utterly blocked Whereas uh, on your way into town on the train, you suddenly get electrified by a new idea. So the, the, the mind, and in particular the art-creating mind, the art-creating impulse, and in, and in fact this is also true of, of any inspiration, that you, you search for it and don't always find it. You sometimes you find it, the less you search for it. Right, and this, is, this, is, this was understood to be true uh, in ancient times, right, the the um, the pursuit of great art and the the and, and the question of using logic to make decisions already was being interrogated by uh, by people in ancient China, and it is, I think, best personified by the or not personified, but best exemplified by uh, the presence of the I Ching. I was I was wondering if that's where you were going. We talked about this in the John Cage entry. That's right. And and the I Ching played a major role in John Cage, John Cage's art, and it did also in in um, in Peter Schmidt introducing randomness. Is that right? Introducing randomness in the form of kind of you know throwing a lot mm -hmm. and believing in some ways that the result of the rolled dice and the combination of of sort of numerology to discover uh, like a a um, 
an obtuse answer in a in a in a document collecting all these sort of solutions um that that will reflect the hand of god or it will reflect it will it will conjure meaning that does exist somewhere there is an answer there's you know you recognize there is an answer outside of yourself and how to bring it down how to put it into language and how to apply it and the eaching does it in very practical ways right each each possible hexagram each arrangement of the lots is related to to a short text is that right, right. like a message like it literally the book will give you the message that you were supposed to get at that moment and then your interpretation of it yes. becomes the messages are carefully chosen to not be direct right and 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 whole schools evolve uh trying to to figure out, well, is there a comprehensive theme to interpreting these things? Does each person go run off with, with, uh, and, and and I'm sorry, I mispronounced it as I Ching, the I Ching. Does each person go take their little message and determine for themselves uh, how that answers their question? It's funny that there's this this uh, happy medium between advice that would be too specific to be useful and advice that is too general to be useful. Somewhere in the middle is the I Ching, where the advice is still somewhat cryptic. Uh, it's specific enough that it gives you something, but cryptic enough that you can still interpret it, uh, uh, interp- you know, individualize it for you and your situation. Right, and in particular, if your if your worldview um, uh, believes in sort of a um, a selfless truth, or you know, or is if the if the if your religious world and your political world is a, is working against ego. Um, to, to imagine that your interpretation is also sort of not a sign of your genius, but rather a sign of sort of a, you know, a flow uh, for lack of, for to add a hippie term to the idea. Right. Something's coming from outside yourself that you need to recognize. And that, that uh, acknowledgement of Eastern tradition and that incorporation of Eastern ideas was happening within the art and, uh, and avant-garde um, in the West, in this same time period, the 60s and, and early 70s, it was the time of popularization of yoga and meditating and... and Eastern music. Right. Uh, that all seemed like a new discovery and and was appealing to people because it seemed... Well, it was certainly more ancient in a lot of regards than the Western tradition. Also, it hadn't been poisoned by... Uh, you know, it's it, it answers all the the needs these people had for religion and spirituality without being their parents' religion, uh, right. which was which was now tainted by, you know, both real and imagined slights that, that had come to that generation. And it was applicable to things like uh, art and exercise and um, seemed to be all-encompassing where a Christian tradition maybe didn't have that sort of fully... Uh, fully universal application. If yeah. you went to your priest and said, how do I make this crazy painting? You know, the priest is going to have like less to say maybe about it. Well, Christianity has that specificity I was right. talking about. There's a spectrum and Christianity is, you know, a lot of Western religion is very far on the, on the specificity right. spectrum. Like, and its primary concern is what happens after you die or in some, or, or how to behave according to a, a moral, 
a path that will assure your fate right rather than how what is your process but a lot of very specific suggestions here's the way god would like you to dress <laughs> That's right. here are the things god would like you to do here are the different things he would like you to do on a sabbath here are the things he wants you to eat. You know, there's a lot of that. And there's, that's, it's very hard to apply specific codes like that to what should my, it answers questions. It answers questions like what kind of person should I be on one axis? Right. Should I cheat on my wife or not? But it does not answer questions on the axis of what kind of art should I make? Right. If you throw the I Ching of Christianity, the answer is going to be maybe God doesn't want you to make this art. <laughs> if you're having trouble, Have maybe. Have you thought about not wasting your time so much, Brian Eno? Wow. That's really good. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout you know eno was influenced by schmidt and by cage and was uh, after he left Roxy Music, because he would be, been in Roxy Music for a couple of years and it didn't work out because probably Brian Ferry was wearing ascots and he was wearing uh, feathered headdresses and they had a little parting of the way. A band can only have one Brian. And it doesn't matter if you spell it differently. It's like the homophone of Brian. You get one. Well, and the thing about uh, Brian Eno is he is uh, he is very posh. Brian Eno's full name, I don't know if you know this, is Brian Peter George St. John Le Baptiste de la Salle Eno. Whoa. Yeah. Really? So he's not, he's not like Brian from the block. He's, um. He got a nice art school education because his parents could afford a nice art school education. Well, and also he has a, he has that kind of rarefied gentility in his air. I mean, Eno sounds so space age. You're like, oh, well he changed, he must have changed his name at some point. It's one backwards, you know? Right. But no, it's, it's actually a. It's a French Huguenot name that sounded like Eno or something, and it got anglicized into E-N-O, so he came with this Blade Runner name ready to go. Yeah, right, and and uh, and he has a kind of Blade Runner, I mean, he's he's slim, he's otherworldly, and especially- Right now he's wearing weirder glasses than anyone else on Earth, probably, <laughs> like no matter where he is. Although he does the thing where he's he is restrained, he's not Elton John, right? I mean, he was- uh, but he he somehow got he yeah. got a little bit some kind of Scandinavian yeah. rigidity to he, him. Yeah, he 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 became more disciplined as time went on. But after he left Roxy Music, he immediately began uh, working in what he described as ambient music, which was not again not music that where he was searching for uh, the perfect melody, but rather music that was that was meant to be experienced as a component of an experience or music that was atmospheric. Yeah. It lends a feeling, a feeling 
not a story or a, or as you say, even a melody. There's really often it seems structureless. Right. And it does it. Now we, uh, there, it's been duplicated so many times that it, it feels almost like, um, you know, we hear that kind of mu- music in nature documentaries. Yeah. You now. can't turn on the TV without hearing it, but imagine the first time he was like, no, this is music too. Yeah. Believe me. And it was, you know, it was astonishing and it had a, it had a wide ranging effect. I don't know if you've ever listened to uh, music for airports while in an airport. <laughs> but, does it change the work? But I have, and it does. You know, you walk around an airport with your headphones on listening to music for airports and you're like, I get it now. I get it. Um, but it made him a popular, his his sort of sonic experimentation made him a popular choice for um, avant-garde musicians to employ as a sound effectist or or in Bowie's case and, and in a lot of other cases as a producer. And does it vary how much uh, a producer actually contributes to the sound of the record? Absolutely. I mean, some producers are, um, some producers bring a real engineering perspective to records where they use the technology and the tools of the recording um, media to to make interesting drum sounds and to make interesting um, uh, to, to make the compositions more interesting to say, why don't we take out that chorus and put in, you know, or, or hop to the solo and so forth. Mm-hmm. And there are other producers, I mean, in hip hop, right. Producer, the name producer is given to the person that produces the track, the sound like, like, that the, oh, that see. the rapper raps over. Um, but other producers become real collaborators and are are responsible for the sound of the album. The musician brings in the the song, and then the producer deconstructs it and turns it into a and uses a sonic palette that belongs to them. And I think in the production of of the U two albums, Daniel Lemois was the person that brought the more formal production. The guy behind the soundboard that was that had comments on the, on the bass part. And then Eno would come in almost as a consultant and add uh, the dreamlike sounds, or he would often inspire uh, songwriting changes by asking interesting questions or, or posing, um, a, a, a posing an approach because there's and, and less a technique than actually like a, a co- like a, a very broad concept. Yeah. Well, so in the mid 1970s, during this period where Schmidt and Eno and a lot of other people uh, were exploring the process of making art as a form of arts arts education and also art creation, uh, they started to realize that a lot of time what what um, what inhibits you as an artist is that you encounter a dilemma or you encounter a, a crossroads and you're stymied. You can't, you don't know what to do next. It's not a dilemma between two things. You are blocked. You, you don't know what comes next. Is yeah, it like that? Yeah. It's a, it is a, um, I mean, it's a, it, it is a kind of, it's the problem of infinite possibility. Yes. And when you go in and, and push record, you could do anything. You could just make raspberries with your mouth for an hour and call it an album. And if you want to make something more disciplined, if you're looking to make something beautiful, it's often uh, it's often in- incredibly um, overwhelming to choose even between f- three paths. 
I just hate staring at that blinking cursor in my word processor, you know, like I, I have nothing to say and something's got to be here. Something has to be here. Yeah. I have zero ideas. And you often just I start just, writing, right? Or you're, or you're, you're told to. That's what Linda Berry would say. Yeah. Move your hand, you know, like make, keep moving it until something comes out. Usually I end up just going for a walk. I move every other part of my body, but and, that's and good I, advice. I often do sit and just start writing just like blarbadarbadarbadarb. And eventually you, I mean, you have something to work with at least. I mean, that's how we do this show, clearly. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> just start talking and see if it uh, becomes about something at some point. But in the early 70s, Schmidt and Eno, working separately and inspired by the I Ching, had started to write down on uh, note cards these kind of little aphorisms that weren't meant to be direct instructions, but were meant to cause your your... Uh, your sort of vertical thinking, your logical process to short circuit it Be, uh, with, with the idea that your creative mind uh, needed to be stimulated, needed to be given a problem to solve that wasn't the problem at hand. And by doing that, you would take an oblique path, uh, uh, an angle you couldn't have imagined uh, leading up to, you know, as an attempt to solve whatever your problem. And Eno and Schmidt were both working on this independently. And when they, when they realized the other was, was doing a similar thing, they compared what they were making. They each had a deck of cards. And it was, and there was a tremendous amount of overlap. Oh, that's interesting. Between what they were doing. So they decided to collaborate. And they were, they were influenced by a writer by the name of Edward de Bono who um, who had uh, written a book uh, or had coined the term lateral thinking. I know this guy. He's the lateral thinking guy. Yeah. Now, are you familiar with, have you read? I don't know the era, but I remember in the 80s being to like uh, teachers who had read the book being suddenly very excited and we had to learn about lateral thinking. And so suddenly we'd get to do something fun in class where, right. where we'd get a problem to solve, you know, like how would you use a block of cheese and a barometer to do X. Right. It's the, it's or, basically the, the interview questions you get at Google. Exactly. <laughs> and also we, I, that's around the time, I guess I heard these in the early eighties, those situation puzzles you would often, do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah. John and Mary are lying dead on the floor in a puzzle of, in a puddle of water, you know, and you'd have to kind of figure out what unusual approach you need to take to the problem to make the story make sense. A man points a gun at a bartender or a bartender points a gun at a man and he says, thank you and leaves happily or something, you know, like, right. What interpretation of the story makes sense? It's basically um, it's basically hanging some bananas from the ceiling and putting a chair in the opposite side of the room and waiting for the monkey to figure it out. That's right. For, I'm sure to a higher dimensional being, that's exactly what it looks like. When is the monkey just going to move over the stool? Well, and the classic example of it is um, the Judgment of Solomon, right? Where uh, oh, that's true. two women are arguing over whose baby it uh, who whose baby it is, and Solomon says, "Let's cut the baby in half." And then the true mother is revealed. I read a, as a kid, I was very influenced by this book of, I think, I don't know if they were Chinese folktales or later Western uh, evocations of Chinese folktales about a wise judge who's always making these Solomon-like Confucian rulings. I remember one about a, a poor kid who's living above a, a bakery um, and he, 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 or above a restaurant and he thanks them at one point for creating those beautiful smells that help him eat his, his poor rice every day. And the restaurateur gets mad and takes him to court and says, this guy's been stealing my smells. I demand recompense. And the, the wise Confucian judge thinks, and then he nods. This has really stuck with me, apparently. 
And he says, uh, I award, uh, take out all the silver in your pocket. That's what I'm awarding. And the poor student is so sad because he, he takes out all the silver in his pocket. And the judge says, now jingle it. And he jingles it. And the guy says, okay, now put the money away. Uh, you took his the smell of his uh, cooking, and now he will take the sound of your coins. <laughs> and I was like, "This is that's amazing." Sound I, of gong. How do I bong. how do I think like that exactly? Well, oblique strategies then became a thing that they they weren't just pursuing as a um, as a they, neither artist was writing these down just as a uh, you know with the intent of making a book. They were writing them down. With the idea of making a deck that they could consult, something, uh, you know, uh, in a way, a, a random brain. Turn up a random card and let the universe tell you. Right. And a lot of them were music specific. Oh, is that, I was going to ask, so where are these on the specificity spectrum? Do they actually suggest a, a, a tool or a technique or are they just like, be more open? I mean, what, what kinds of things do these cards say? Well, a lot of them were, uh, were just general kind of... Um, you know, oblique, obtuse recommendations. Some of them were uh, were specific to um, to making music. Like, for instance, abandon normal instruments is a is an oblique strategy, where you're sitting and you're you're working on a guitar part. It's frustrating. It's frustrating. What do we do? Go to the oblique strategies. You pull out abandon normal instruments, and you're left to decide what a normal instrument is. Probably your guitar qualifies as one and try to find something in the studio to make, to fill the area, fill the gap in the song you were trying to fill, but with something else. You have to literally abandon your guitar. You have to go leave it on a doorstep yeah, or abandon and come back and start go banging on the pipes yeah. in the, in the studio washroom. Take your guitar to the, to the front step of a fire station or a church, <laughs> leave a little note on note it. Note in the case. <laughs> um, and so they made this little deck of cards, and between the two of them, they came up with about 113 cards, and they published uh, published them. You know, they made them with the intention of of handing them to other people and and having what? them be useful, like just to friends in the art scene. Or is this a is this a mass market item? It was it was not a mass market item at first. It was um, the first edition had they made about. 500 of them and they were you know they're handsome because these are artists right. and so it was a little black box that had these cards inside and they were signed and you know they recognized that they were making an artifact um and then they were popular with their friends so in 1978 they made another edition d- uh, this time of a thousand and the number of cards went up from ni- 113 to 128 now you can imagine once you'd made 113 of them that you would be inspired and keep making oblique strategies. So I was surprised to learn that in that three years, they'd only added 15 cards. Um, it seemed like there would be 400 by that. Right. It seems like every time a little, a little, uh, vague notion occurred to you, you would be like, that's a card. Right. Right. Exactly. Uh, and, the following year, their third edition came out, uh, also of a thousand. 
This time, it only had 123 cards. I want to see the ones that don't make the cut. Yeah, they'd taken five away. Now, which, I don't know I don't know whether... Which, which of these ideas turned out to be awful? <laughs> I remember Spy Magazine used to do a thing where they would list the people who got dropped from who's who every year. <laughs> like, who who is no longer who? I want to see the, the non-oblique strategies that didn't make each cut. Ouch. Right, and then, then there might have been quite a bit of circulation but uh, of these ideas and there uh, and it it quickly became obvious that not everybody was using these for music and so there were editions of oblique strategies that didn't have musical prompts i mean i'm looking at a set of them right now and some of them are very specific to music engineering um but some of them are like remember those quiet evenings yeah here's right. one that says what goes on good point what i goes mean on? Th- that's a great question um, in fact, now there are oblique strategy websites where you can just go and re- get a randomized, like I'm sitting at one now. Um, Why don't you give us an idea for the show? Like, what should we do at this point? Emphasize repetitions. Emphasize repetitions. Yeah. No, now you say emphasize. Emphasize, <laughs> emphasize repetitions. So okay. we should emphasize repetitions? I'm going cl- to click it again. Always first steps. I don't, that's not, that doesn't even have a verb. And I, I dig that about it. Yeah. Well, and, and it almost seems like the more general they are, the better for me. And what you, I think in my experience working with them, because if this one says body percussion and you know, huh? we can all just Bobby yeah, McFerrin yeah, up right just, now and just fat boys. It. <laughs> um, in working with these and I have used them creatively. You have, if you, if you give yourself the leeway to like, pick through five of them until you find one that you oh, like. Oh yeah. Is that better or worse? It's worse because ah. sitting and working with always first steps, it really requires that you, that you surrender um, and surrender to what this is and what you, what you pull out of always first steps is going to govern your choice because you're looking for, I mean, to sit in and pick cards until you find one that works for you. You're not, surrendering your executive right. function. And the art I like has surprise and mystery, right. I guess. And this guarantees some kind of level of unpredictability. All right? Art with surprise and mystery too. Right. And you're going to find you're going to work in, in with your hands in a different way. If you set out to pursue always first steps in the process, and particularly if you pull that out in the middle of a recording session, where do you get to first steps, you know? Uh, what if you accidentally were doing this and you it, you kept turning over cards and it said things like nine uh, eleven or right. uh, a, a baby with leprosy and then you're like oh I'm pl- these are cards against humanity yeah you can't right. you can't record a record rah, with those rah, although you probably could it would be <laughs> it would be maybe like a insane clown posse record or something I'm sure there are people out there that are that are doing that right now or if they weren't they're gonna do it tomorrow. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com slash 
slash start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. My first collection of oblique strategies was given to me as a gift and uh, a friend of mine, an artist by the name of Kristen Cosmos, sat at a typewriter and typed oblique strategy, typed them out on three by five cards with her little, um, you know, vintage typewriter and made this set for me as an art project in its own right. Was she using some canonical list or was she just picking tips that worked for her? So as we, you know, as I said, uh, the number of oblique strategies went from 113 to 123 in 1979 and then precipitously dropped uh, to 100 oblique strategies. In 1996, um, the software designer Peter Norton whom you might know like as the Norton antivirus Norton guy, antivirus guy <laughs> who uh, was a Pacific Northwesterner. He's from Aberdeen. Oh, I didn't know that. He went to Reed and he was a kind of, you know, he worked for Boeing and was sort of just a general problem solving engineering type and bought one of the first IBM PCs and early on realized that, I mean, he accidentally deleted a file as we all have done a thousand times, but rather than tear his hair out, he set about to write a program where he was able to retrieve the deleted file. And that program became popular. You know, he traded it among other PC programmers of the early 80s. And he developed a software company that 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 had a, a whole series of um, of different products and became uh, an early tech or not early, but like a like a mid period tech millionaire and sold his Sold his company to what? Uh, System Dine. Let's just say it was Infotech. Um, hang on. Let's see who it actually is. Macro. Yeah, it's uh, Info Dine Tech. Uh, it was. It was. Burb. Compu. Compu. Servo Corp. Uh, it's by uh, Simon Tech or Simon Tech. Which is a company that makes I knew Norton, that. Like, the yeah, Norton family S- of products. still makes Norton utilities today. Yeah, that's true. Simintex. Uh, so he became a millionaire, but at a at a certain point was, um, you know, had been influenced by oblique strategies or was aware of it, and he asked Eno's permission to make an edition of them uh, for his friends. And in 1996, he made a Christmas present edition that had little art attached to it. And uh, he made 4,000 copies. Oh, that's probably more than there's ever been on earth. Right? Yeah. He's got a lot of friends. And so the, uh, the arrival of these in 1996 actually postdates my friend, Kristen making this set for me. Oh, you had it before Peter Norton went. S- right. Public. So, so at this point there were only, I think, a couple of thousand of them in existence, but within the arts community, they were widely known and they had been the, the, the strategies themselves had been disseminated enough that Kristen was able to get a, you know, a list of them, but she wasn't able to get her hands on a set uh, because they, you know, they were um, 
they're very expensive and very prized and and I assume they're collectible now, but presumably, presumably making a deck of cards is not the hard part. No, but but you couldn't. I mean, they were they were copyright protected. You couldn't just make a black box full of Eno's cards. Uh, they you, were you could if he doesn't catch you. I mean, you probably couldn't sell them. Well, Kristen did right. She yeah. sat and and it was part of I think her process to uh, almost a meditative process. Put in a three by five card, write an oblique strategy. Like for instance. Uh, Remove ambiguities and convert to specifics. I, I bet there's a card in there with the exact opposite advice. Yeah. Oh, well, sure. There was, I was reading a story about how when uh, Bowie and Eno were working on, I guess it's Heroes, the instrumental track, Sense of Doubt, which kind of has an oddly dramatic through line and a bunch of surprising things in it. They had each drawn a different card. And Eno's card said, make everything as similar as possible. And Bowie's said, emphasize differences. So they both had to cut, had to, they had to compose this track aligned with competing oblique strategies and kind of the oddness of that instrumental is what results. Well, and I think I think that is um, that's exactly how they have appeared in my music over time. Right, you you're given a problem to solve, and often it is against what everyone in the room actually wants to do. Um, that's you know you are you. Do not want to convert specifics to generalities at the point at which you're like stymied. Uh, you want so, you want some freaking solid advice. Look, just tell me whether yeah. we should put the key change here or not. Right now, Kristen, I think, became aware of oblique strategies because they appear as a plot point in the movie Slackers. Oh, the Richard Linklater movie? Yeah. Uh, Slackers, the 1990 sort of Generation X uh, cult film. Slacker. It's, we're going to get notes. Right. Sorry. Slacker, not Slackers. It's like, I think it's Linklater's first movie. Slackers is what we called one another. Slacker is the film. But a character in the movie walks around sort of handing out oblique strategies cards. I remember this. I yeah. didn't know what they were. Yeah. And one of the cards, and kind of the most famous one... Uh, was not actually one of the canonical oblique strategies. Not not no, you know original. It wasn't. No, it said withdrawing in disgust is not the same thing as apathy. Oh, this is becomes an REM lyric. That's right. So REM then takes R- that. REM says Richard said Richard said Richard meaning Richard Linklater. Richard said withdrawing it. But so does that mean Michael Stipe did not know it was an oblique strategy because he credits Richard Linklater with it? Well, he credits him because he. Because it's not it's, it's Brian Eno. A, it's not a real card. It's a fake oblique strategy. And what I found when Kristen made my set was she made her own. There are more, I have more oh, than some, 113. Some of them are interpolations by her. Yeah. And, and, and it's incredibly seductive to do. And I've sat and made oblique strategies. I it's, love the idea of you producing a deck that has some of hers and then some of your own. Yeah. And then somebody else produces one that has the ideas of yours they liked plus their own. Right. I, I mean, like it mutating and tendrilling out. They're really beautiful and they're really, um, they're, they're not easy to make because they have to, they have to reverberate mm-hmm. uh, because they are inspiring lateral thinking. You know, they are in the, uh, Peter Schmidt wrote a book called The Thoughts Behind the Thoughts. They're trying to uh, they're trying to convey and conjure something otherworldly or at, or at least to break your pattern. And so you can't just write down, you know, take a walk 
or uh, you know, go generate some <laughs> static electricity or whatever. Like they have to, they have to have an element of bafflement. Have you thought of? Have you, what do you think about? Uh, lateral thinking as it applies to non-artistic fields, you know, like it's important to, you know, for engineers coming up with novel solutions as well, or, I mean, I guess comedy is an art, but I'm thinking about improv people not taking the first idea, but waiting for something weirder to occur to them. Right. It's a little bit. Yes. And yeah, Uh, I think there's hardly any realm that requires and, you know, engineering, of course, requires a lot of creative thinking. Sure. Like, I know you put down computer programmers, but should a good programmer have a stack of oblique strategies when they are trying to figure out the best way to, to uh, sure. deliver a product? I, I mean, they absolutely should. And I, I, uh, I disparage computer programmers because it is hilarious for me to do, not because I actually don't think that they do good well, work. And because you know they have asthma and can't catch up with you. <laughs> That's right. You can outrun them. But I, I do it mostly because they are... They are heralded as the prince and princesses <laughs> right. of our contemporary society, and I think that they need to be taken down a peg because <laughs> they are they are egomaniacs. But oblique strategies remain a feature in in music production. Coldplay has credited them, and and uh, other musicians will start off and and have oblique strategies as a component of their process. Uh, I continue. It's easy to forget that you have them. It's 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 easy to forget that they are an oracle, right? Someone that you can consult outside of your, you know, when you're making an artistic work, particularly one that's collaborative, it's very seldom uh, democratic, and it and it's often a very small group of like-minded people, um, and and here you have a. Um, you have some way to connect with the with the other. It's weirdly easy to just kind of stick with the process that you you always do. You know, it's it's. I don't know if it's because it's reassuring, or uh, you know, even if it's not working for you, it's just so seductive to just stay in that step at a time iterative process. And yeah, what you need is to step outside it. Yeah, and in music making, I mean, it's a big part of the process to try and make all your songs. Uh, if you're making an album to make those songs feel like part of a whole, like if you suggest to a producer, Hey, let's record the drums for every song in a different location. The producer is going to push back because it will sound to the listener like an alien combination of like a playlist, like a, like a, hmm. a combination of songs that don't belong together. And so in almost every recording session you go in and record the drums all for all the songs all, for all the songs and then you begin to add interesting other elements but um but but it's easy i think to make an entire record where you never once deviate from today's guitar day let's go record our guitars i mean it's the it's the thing about music that doesn't interest me is that i think this song sounds too much like all the songs on the last record and all the songs on the record before that. And you, you'll hear it in modern pop music. There's never a point where the producer doesn't say, okay, let's bring a vocoder in here. You know, let's bring auto-tune in and we'll make this song sound like it's got auto-tune on it. No one ever says, let's pull out an oblique strategies card. And, uh, you know, uh, they hardly ever say put auto, auto tune. Is that what we need? We need to send oblique strategies to Scooter Braun (laughs) and like the next, the next Justin Bieber record is going to sound so much better. Well, that would be my strategy. 
And that concludes Oblique Strategies, entry 856.RO1202, certificate number 26638, in the omnibus. Uh, listeners, simple subtraction. Huh, simple subtraction. I'm not going to give your, uh, I'm not going to give your, uh, social media handles, just mine. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> My- follow your, follow the, follow the stratagem. Don't, uh, don't forget to follow, uh, the, Omni- at the Omnibus Project on all social media. I am at Ken Jennings on Twitter and, uh, I have nothing else to say. Yeah. I, you know, I have a part of this. Too, I can add my stuff later. <laughs> uh, let me see. Analyzes col- analyze color changes in grading. That's going to be a little tr- tricky in giving an email address. Well, but who knows what color changes mean? It's true. It could be vocal color. Mm-hmm. Don't forget to send us uh, electronic mail if that's available in your era at the Omnibus Project <laughs> at gmail.com. Interesting that Gregorian chant is. Uh, <laughs> Is where you go. Is there a card for Gregorian chant? That would explain a lot of low, I think. Let's it, see what my oblique strategy is. Imagine the piece as a set of disconnected events. Okay. Oh, right. So I'll read email addresses and you go out and crash your car yeah. into something. <laughs> uh, the futurelings uh, congregate on Facebook under a group of the same name. There are uh, like-minded people on Reddit as well. If you would like to send, uh, as an unrelated event, if you would like to write us a letter... Um, or send us uh, oblique strategies of your own, please do so. Write them out on cards and send them to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. If you put in a self-addressed stamped envelope, John will add an oblique strategy of his own and send it back to you. <laughs> do we need holes? That's the next one I got. Do, do we need holes to talk about the Patreon, John? Yeah, I think, I think we need holes. Let's put a hole right here. I've got a hole in my pocket. I thought by hole you meant blank space, but you meant a, a, a yellow submarine reference. <laughs> uh, we, uh, you can contribute uh, to the whole. John has a hole in his pocket that needs funding mm. for the omnibus. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, if you would like to contribute to become part of the project and the process of this time capsule, um, check out patreon.com slash omnibus project uh, and, uh, and be generous, please. Let's see here. My next oblique strategy for completing this outro is... Oh, wait. Did I lose my oblique strategies? Oh, curses! This, this can still be one of the holes. You're fine. Uh, we have added another hole here while you dig yourself out of, <laughs> of trying to find the right URL. Uh, let's see. Well, so oblique strategies are available for sale now. You can buy a box of them. They've been licensed by Eno and are now in print... And the number of them available has exploded. I'm probably going to actually buy a set, I think. Yeah, from, uh, from, from just a few thousand to now an infinite number. Uh, but also they're available online at the Oblique Strategies. You can Google it and find Oblique Strategy Generators. Or if you're in the future, just dig through the wreckage until you generate a complete set. Right. You can do it with Magic the Gathering or Pokemon too. Mine says, the most important thing is the thing most easily forgotten. Uh, that would be the Reddit reference. I already did right, that. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, futurelings, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived, but we hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. Give the game away. Oh. oh. Uh, 
this whole thing is just an excuse for me and Ken to... Yeah, we're not actually making a time capsule. Yeah, this is just a... It's a bi-weekly podcast. Podcast that we're doing for fun and and financial gain. Yeah, it's... it's wow. <sighs> I, I didn't think we were ever going to do that, but the cards told us to. Oof, it said right there. Uh, if the worst comes soon, this uh, recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. Is that a hole? Leave holes. I'm leaving a hole. The inconsistency principle. (laughs) (laughs) But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.